0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So this is retirement, huh? <laughs> I have been, uh, I've been thinking over the last few weeks about analogies uh, that would help to describe this process which we are, of course, all a part of. <clears throat> I had a, a retired colleague who said, it's a little like losing your mate and then trying to start dating again. But for reasons I am not yet clear of, Kathy did not think that was a particularly appropriate analogy, so I continued looking. So I'm thinking now it's a little bit more like a commencement, at least from my point of view. So you think back to those final days of high school, such an emotional time. You've been preparing for so long. There were ACTs and SATs, the final requirements. It was the last concert or the last game. Um, There's the writing of the applications um, with all of the always appreciated prodding of parents. Um, There is then the hearing from the schools, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. And now here you are, poised to receive all of the congratulations uh, from parents and grandparents. uh, You're looking forward to this next phase of your life. At the same time, you're saying goodbye to friends and classmates and teammates. Um, There is a sense of excitement and anxiety. Um, It's not an exit or an entrance. It is both. So here we are in the midst of this transition time. And what can we learn from Moses or from Joshua in one of the most significant transitions that took place in Israel's early history? Well, let's just set the scene to begin with. Um, Very briefly, you remember that Moses was raised Um, He grew up as an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter, but he was a Hebrew by birth. Though he grew up as an Egyptian prince, Moses never forgot who he was. So one day, he views this Egyptian overlord who is beating a Hebrew slave, and the anger wells up from deep within him. He kills this overlord, making him the most wanted man in all of Egypt. So he has to flee. He flees to Midian, where he marries uh, a young woman and becomes the overseer of the father-in-law's shepherds. You remember his call at the burning bush. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, which Pharaoh reluctantly does. Moses leads the people through the Red Sea. For 40 years, a generation, He leads them through the wilderness. And God did amazing things among them. They faced faced challenges along the way, but God was with them. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God was with them every step, whether they knew it or not, whether they liked it or not. And so in our lesson this morning that Anders has read to us, The people come to the edge of the Jordan River. The promised land is within sight. And Moses begins to explain to them that God is raising up a new leader, one who will lead them on the next phase of their journey. Some guy from Kirksville, Missouri, um, with roots in Chicago, apparently, who roots for the Chicago Cubs, which at least means that he knows something about hope, Um, So first of all, let's acknowledge that the subsequent history for the people of Israel was not that grand. There are things that we can unlearn. You will remember that the people of Israel went in and did terrible things to the natives who were already living in that land, sins that have been repeated here in our own country with our treatment of Native Americans and African slaves, and in more recent history after World War II by Jews themselves in their treatment of Palestinians. So let's be clear, no one thinks that you have come here to subdue the Berkeleyites or the Southfieldites or the Royal Oakites any more than anyone believes that the people have been wandering in the wilderness for the last 30 years with no clue and a bunch of kids saying, are we there yet? So with that caveat though, what can we learn from Moses and Joshua? Well, it turns out a lot of things. Though this morning, only three things, because every sermon should have three points, or at least one good one. So first of all, that the transition is not over. Moses had led the people to the banks of the Jordan. They could see the promised land, but there were still significant challenges and wonderful opportunities that lay ahead of them. So a year ago, hard to believe, but a year ago, our church consultant, Susan Beaumont, wisely schooled us that we can manage change, but transition is also a matter of the heart. So we can manage pastoral nominating committee procedures, We can jump through Presbyterian hoops. We can figure out how to run a congregational Zoom meeting so that people can vote in many different ways, unanimously. We can carefully plan out farewells as well as meaningful get to know you's. We can and we must plan. Failing to plan, they say, is planning to fail. But feelings cannot be managed as hard as we may try. They must only be listened to and addressed and in their own time. And you see, here's the thing. We all have feelings. Each of you do, Anders and Heather and Axel and Kathy and me, we all have feelings and we do not always have the same feelings at the same time, or express them in the same ways. Linda Karlovek, a psychologist who deals with organizations, says that almost all resistance to organizational change is emotional, though it is perceived to be rational. What we resist or fail to acknowledge persists. Carolyn Weiss, who wrote one of the books that some of our leaders read as we were getting ready for this unorthodox kind of change, Carolyn says that every organization, which means every church, which means this church, has its dysfunctional elements which tend to emerge in times of transition. So now we are all wondering, am I a dysfunctional element (laughs) or part of one? And the short answer to that question is yes, we are all somewhat dysfunctional. Certainly more than we would like to admit to others or maybe even to ourselves. That's why we have also planned communion for this day, as so we are reminded that God's grace is bigger than all of our shortcomings and dysfunction put together. And these dysfunctional parts of ourselves and our community will likely cause some conflict as this transition unfolds. And we all know how good we are with that, right? So some of us will be tempted to manage all of this. I could name names, but I won't. Some will be tempted to just want to smooth it all over. Again, names, but... And others may be tempted to run away. And if that is you, remember that I said this. So the first thing is to be patient with ourselves and with each other. Because as the saying goes, God ain't finished with any of us or all of us yet. So be patient. Maybe we can come back to this. A second thing that I think Moses and Joshua can remind us is that As we said last week, the leader is changing. The mission is really not. What makes GPC vital and alive is wired into the DNA of this community. It is what drew Anders to you and you to him. God has called Anders to build on your strengths, not recreate them. This is first of all, just by way of reminder, a loving and caring community. Anders has already experienced some of this. It comes in very concrete ways, in emails, and cards, in little baskets left on a table, in meals delivered, in, um, in rides that are provided. And I know from what the PNC told me long ago that that kind of pastoral care and that sense of community are vitally important to Anders. But as we mentioned last week, only caring for each other will get you only so far as a church. I mean, what a blessing it is, right? But remember that God said to Abraham, you are blessed to become a blessing to others. So one of the things that makes Greenfield vital is reaching out beyond these walls to the community. Now, some of that just because of COVID, of course, has had to be rethought. So no SOS this March. And the Crossroads Soup Kitchen, I understand, has been pushed back to the spring. Yet amazing, rebuilding together happened in the middle of a pandemic, as did a virtual crop walk. Folks have found ways to carry on blood drives and food drives. And shoe drives, it looks like there is a new drive for socks. People are going to be well clad on their feet. Holiday gift card and donations of over $8,000 this Christmas for Freedom House. Now, just being in transition necessitates some internal focus. They don't call it a self-study for no reason. And an operations manual was long overdue here. Though, let's face it, it's not going to attract a lot of new members, though I do understand that Anders has vowed to read it from cover to cover, to Heather on their next three date nights, which I thought was really a good sign. Um, But again, this is why you called Anders, because he has already served on a board of a homeless shelter and as an ex-officio member of a local food pantry. Because in his ministry at Kirksville, he encouraged them to use some of their endowment fund to free up some of those funds to support local community projects, a food pantry, another program designed to bring medical relief to low-income families. And of course, in this outreach Beyond these walls, Greenfield flies a flag that is unapologetically progressive, where all may serve and marry, where science is an ally, not an enemy of the faith, where evangelism is not about tearing down other people's faiths, but about sharing what is best in our own. In his introductory letter to the PNC, Anders wrote, I strongly identified with your church's commitment to progressive theology and a spirit of inclusion and diversity. So Bill Beekner, one of my favorite Presbyterian writers, uh, writes of this shared vision. To journey for the sake of only saving our own lives is, little by little, to cease to live in any sense that really matters, even to ourselves. Because it is only by journeying for the world's sake, even when the world bores and sickens and scares you half to death, that little by little, we start to come alive. So, Anders has been called here by God to help you build on your shared strengths. The other thing that seems to me part of Greenfield's DNA is this decidedly entrepreneurial approach to ministry. In other words, thinking outside of the box. That approach is evident in the way Greenfield partners with other churches and nonprofits to create things like a stage ministry, or a welcome in, or a rise against hunger. It was evident years ago, when this church was at the forefront of the That All May Freely Serve movement, making the whole denomination more inclusive, and it has been evident in this out-of-the-ordinary call process. You have not done this the way most churches do it. And as Deb Bassaby reminded me a while back, Anders above all others was the one who seemed to appreciate the direction you had taken. In other words, great minds think alike. So how can you help your new pastor who, has, who God has raised up for the next phase of your journey together? Let me suggest two things this morning. First of all, remind him that he does not have to do this alone. I have read your piff, (laughs) and I know that you think this is one of your areas of growth. So I am here to tell you that this is a very capable and committed group. But actually, I have learned more about that in the last year than I did in the last 29 before that. So in the last nine months, I have watched a PNC diligently do its thing. I have watched a self-study group produce an amazing document. A transition team has put together an operations manual that apparently even Heather cannot wait to read. They have written and they have led a wonderful small group study, Companions on the Journey. They are in the process of revamping the church website. They have created a new call-around program for elders and deacons, as well as a racial reconciliation group. They have figured out how to live stream and Zoom, and they have carried out a walk to Bethlehem stewardship program that was only supposed to get us to Bethlehem, but somehow got us to the Holy Land and all the way back. And here's the kicker. Every one of those programs was led by lay people. I wish I had figured this out 10 years ago, but I didn't. The second way you can help Anders goes back to something I mentioned earlier when I suggested that you need to be patient with each other and with yourself. But not too patient. Rather, I would say, be ready, whether you are ready or not. Transitions are always filled with unanswered questions. How can you possibly know at this point? And so the temptation is to just wait and see. It is so understandable. And it is equally deadly. The Bible suggests that feeling ready is overrated. You remember that when God led the people into the promised land, God insisted that they put their feet into the Jordan first. Only then did God part the river. If they had waited for proof, they would still be standing on the banks to this very day. Really, can you imagine Tom Izzo and Juwan Howard, MSU and U of M coaches, right, um, going into the locker room and saying to their players, I want you to go out there and I want to get you to give it some of what you've got. I have never done a wedding, I assume you have not, where a groom says to the bride, with this ring I thee wed, and I promise to be devoted and faithful to you a pretty good chunk of the time. (laughs) In fact, there is that old tradition that when the bride and the groom first go over the threshold, the groom carries the bride. It's a sign of wholehearted trust and commitment. Anders and Axel and Heather have left their home and their community to come and partner you with you in ministry. They deserve more than wait and see. They deserve ready or not. Or in the words of the old hymn, Hokey Pokey, put your whole self in. And finally, and maybe this should go without saying, but better to just say it. The leader is changing. The leader is not. Throughout their ministry, the Lord was present with those Israelites as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, whether they knew it or not, whether they wanted it or not. And it is that same spirit that has been with you, the wind beneath your wings all along. The psalmist is right. If the Lord does not build the house, in vain do the builders labor. You know, we all have a tendency to compare ourselves to the accomplishments of our colleagues. We all do this, including ministers, which I believe led to the old Hasidic story about Susya, who came to his followers one day, his eyes red with tears, his face pale with fear. Susya, what's the matter? You look frightened. The other day, I had a vision. In it, I learned the question that the angels will one day ask about my life. The followers were puzzled. Susia, you are pious. You are scholarly and humble. You have helped so many. What question about your life could possibly be so terrifying that you would be frightened to answer it? Susia turned his eyes towards heaven. I have learned that the angels will not ask me why weren't you Moses leading your people out of slavery? His followers persisted, well what will they ask you? And I have learned, Sasya sighed, that the angels will not ask me why weren't you a Joshua leading your people into the promised land? One of his followers approached placed his hands on Susia's shoulders. Looking him in the eye, the follower demanded, but what will they ask you? They will say to me, Susia, there was only one thing that no power on heaven or on earth could have prevented you from becoming. They will say, Susia, why weren't you Susia? So Moses said to Joshua, Joshua, Be strong and bold. It is the Lord who goes before you. And he will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Amen.